You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 11. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. In this episode of the show, we're talking with Jeremy Maestas. Jeremy is a state wildlife biologist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which you'll hear us refer to throughout this episode as simply NRCS, uh, in Oregon. Jimmy grew up in the Great Basin region, so he has a long-standing connection with this ecosystem, and he's been working as a biologist with the greater sage-grouse for the past 15 years. Over the past few years, he has been working on a new project of the NRCS called the Sage-Grouse Initiative. The Sage-Grouse Initiative is a project that NRCS launched back in 2010, uh, and this project was launched as a direct result of the decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that the greater sage-grouse warranted listing as a part of the Endangered Species Act, but would be precluded because other species facing more dire threats uh, took priority. Now, the goal of this project was to reverse sage-grouse declines by establishing partnerships with ranchers and other private landowners and funding voluntary conservation projects throughout the sage-grouse habitat uh, all across its range. Now, Jeremy clearly sees this ambitious project as being a huge success. And although we have yet to see most of the results of these conservation efforts and partnerships, he is confident that we're making a difference and taking the steps necessary to prevent this bird's extinction. So without any further delay, let's uh, jump into this interview. I'm here with Jeremy Maestas, who is a state wildlife biologist with the NRCS in Oregon. How are you doing today, Jeremy? Fantastic, you? I'm doing fantastic as well, thanks. So I'm gonna start off by asking you to tell me just a little bit about your background. I'm curious to hear about how you got involved in sage-grouse conservation. So I basically uh, am a product of the Great Basin. I was born in Nevada, grew up there, and uh, spent most of my life working in the sagebrush ecosystem from Utah to where I'm at now in Oregon. And uh, throughout that journey, uh, sage-grouse were always front and center as kind of uh, an emblem of that ecosystem. And so... I've uh, probably been working in and around sage-grouse for the last 15 years. So I'm wondering if you have any memories of the first time you saw a sage-grouse. Yeah, you know, um, it's kind of those unique experiences you have when you're out with your dad. I grew up hunting and uh, just being in the ecosystem after a fresh rain, smelling the the sagebrush and seeing things like pronghorn antelope that just didn't seem to fit my view of North America and uh, flushing these uh, giant birds um, out of the sagebrush ecosystem really just kind of fell in love with it and have always uh, my heart's always been there and I'm really excited now to be working on this huge conservation challenge of our time in terms of conserving sagebrush uh, landscape. Well, I am hoping to hear more about this huge conservation challenge that we're facing. Um, I wonder, you mentioned that you have been working with sage-grouse as a species for the past 15 years. Um, I wonder how long you've been involved in working directly with the NRCS and the sage-grouse initiative. 
No, I've kind of worked all over, um, mostly with NRCS on working lands, on private range lands, but uh, both in Utah and in Oregon. Um, I just completed a kind of a two-year stint working across the 11 western states uh, from the Dakotas all the way over to where we're at in the Pacific Northwest on uh, helping to implement the NRCS sage grouse initiative, which is you know, really a, a unique, proactive, and large-scale effort to implement enough of the right conservation efforts in the right places to truly turn things around for the ecosystem and, and the wildlife and the humans that depend on it. So I'm hoping to learn more about the goals of the Sage-Grouse Initiative. It seems like the Sage-Grouse Initiative has a really unique approach towards addressing this conservation issue. So I wonder if you can give us some insight into this approach. Sure. You know, we really got started um, with what we call a sage-grouse initiative back in 2010. Uh, back then, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service determined that sage-grouse actually warranted protection under the Endangered Species Act, which was truly a, a call to action for all of the stakeholders in, in the western U.S. To, to do what we really needed to do to turn things around. And um, within uh, USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Service, we, we took uh, our existing uh, infrastructure, our staff, our financial assistance resources that are um, you know, the cornerstone of what we do as an agency. Uh, we're the only agency focused on uh, solely charged with private lands conservation in the US. And so we took that strength and said, uh, let's engage Western ranchers and our partners and bring our resources to bear to, you know, really address the threats to sage grouse and improve the sustainability of our working rangelands. Those are two common goals of SGI. And we want to use science to help better target where those investments go. The, the landscapes we're dealing with are massive. And so we've got to be ever more strategic about what we do um, and then we're also kind of monitoring the outcomes of those investments so that we can truly adjust as we need to um, and improve going forward because we don't always have all the answers. And then finally, we've really stepped up our communication and outreach efforts beyond anything that I've ever seen before in conservation. Um, we're not going to be able to solve this kind of conservation challenge without engaging uh, you know, the American public, really, and on a scale we haven't seen before. We need them to understand what we're dealing with so that there's that long-term buy-in that this this is truly worth saving. And so our effort, the Sage-Grouse Initiative, has grown from a federal government agency-led effort to now we've got well over 40 conservation partners uh, from you know, uh, other federal and state agencies to non-governmental organizations um, all across the board, you know, signed up to implement this, this you know, shared vision of uh, achieving wildlife conservation through sustainable ranching. Great. Well, that brings me right into my next question. It's clear that ranchers are the primary target group for the message being presented by the Sage Grouse Initiative. What I'm wondering is what effect historically has ranching had on sagebrush habitat and on the greater sage grouse? 
Sure. You know, so it, it's uh, definitely a nuanced discussion to have. The threats to sage grouse are really wide and varied. And so, you know, you need to look at across the range that they're not all the same or equally important. Um, things like uh, energy development and fragmentation of the landscape on a, a big scale is happening kind of out in the um, eastern portion of the range in Wyoming and Montana. It's, you know, native rangelands are tilled under for uh, to grow crops. Um because of economic pressures that way. In the Great Basin, some of the key threats are invasive plant species, uh, altered wildfire cycles that are having devastating impacts over um, increasingly large areas. And then also we've got things like trees, like junipers that are in lots of places where they never were historically. And so all those are kind of the expression of um, you know, things that aren't quite right in the ecosystem. But as far as land uses go with with ranching and grazing in particular, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Um, historically, uh, absolutely, you know, the turn of the century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, we had massive overgrazing across most of the West. Of course, that that's changed um, over the last 100-plus years. And, you know, the, the remnant of ranching we have today is nothing quite like what it was then. So we're still dealing with some of the ecological degradation that happened way back then. But um, that's not to say there aren't still opportunities for us to work with um, private land ranchers to manage even more sustainably. Um, we're, we're trying to help them do that. But certainly that's not the key threat that we're paying attention to. Really, we're trying to help maintain large intact rangelands and in this patchwork of ownership in the American West you've got you know basically about 40 percent of the sage grouse range in total is is privately owned uh, and the other 60 is publicly owned but across all of those ownerships the predominant land use is livestock ranching and so while, you know, the effects of grazing itself are certainly varied and, and that's really not the key issue. The key issue is these large scale landscape changes that are happening. And in order to affect that um, across both public and private, landowners are a key stakeholder and, and agent of change in that environment. They not only graze their private lands, but many of them depend on these public land leases. So they have a, an active role to play in the management across private and public lands. So what steps are being taken by both the NRCS and the Sage Grouse Initiative to help protect sage grouse on this 40% of the land uh, within the sage grouse's uh, range that you say is is privately owned. Sure. So, you know, we have certain tools in our toolbox that we're, we're best suited to assist landowners with. Um, and so there's really two arenas in terms of sage-grouse conservation that are going on right now. One is a discussion about um, policy and regulatory protection that, um, you know, the federal agencies, especially the public land management agencies like BLM are talking about implementing so that um, we don't uh, 
cause too much development pressure in these landscapes. That's kind of an arena we don't really deal in. NRCS, the Sage Grouse Initiative partners, really work on the the other kind of human caused threats, um, ecosystem challenges, and it's really more of a restoration, if you will, phase. And so, a lot of the work we do with landowners is evaluating individual ranches for some of those key uh, ecosystem problems that we can help them overcome. And like I mentioned before, in the eastern part of the range, it's already pretty good habitat. They don't have nearly as many of the same ecosystem challenges as we do in the Great Basin. So in in uh, the eastern range, a lot of what we do is um, help them keep those ranch lands intact and in ranching so that they don't go into 40-acre ranchettes or other types of land uses that are just not compatible with sage grouse and, and other sagebrush obligates. So um, improving grazing management and uh, creating healthier perennial native uh, bunch grass communities is a key element. Um, in those types of plans, a lot of it is, you know, adjusting the timing of grazing so that we can consider you know, protecting the plants and also providing better nesting cover for sage grouse. But, you know, in, along the way, we do things like um, help them mark fences or move fences that are perhaps too close to sage grouse breeding sites. Uh, these birds have trouble sometimes seeing those fences in the early morning hours. And so we've identified um, fence collisions as, a, as an issue that we address. But, you know, probably more importantly, uh, we're trying to keep these lands intact and conservation easements are another um, tool in our toolbox where essentially ranchers voluntarily um, sell the development rights to their property. They still maintain ownership. They still keep it as a working ranch, but they forego the right to fragment it into smaller pieces into the future. And that uh, really is a key element for sage grouse. Bringing it back to the Great Basin, um, key things that we're working on are, you know, juniper encroachment. We know there are millions of acres of trees where they historically weren't. And so we're really surgically trying to go in, uh, take those trees out, maintain the sagebrush community and benefit a whole host of sweet species that, that depend on that uh, shrub community. Uh, those trees are competing directly with that um, grass, forb and shrub community. And so when we do that, it benefits um, a whole host of other wildlife species. Uh, invasive species are another challenge out here. So we're working on strategies for dealing with uh, annual grasses that come from other continents like cheatgrass and medusa head rye. Uh, so those are some of the key things that we're focused on in a nutshell across the range. So I want to focus on the juniper encroachment issue for just a minute. This is an issue that's somewhat controversial. There are folks who disagree that these stands of juniper should be removed. I guess I'm wondering, what is it that's causing these uh, juniper trees to uh, grow in areas where we have never seen juniper trees in historic times? Very good questions. And, um, you know, we've fortunately had a lot of science foundation on this to feel really confident in what we're doing, that it is ecologically based and we can do it in a surgical way that, that protects uh, 
true sites that historically did have juniper on them. But, uh, you know, I sometimes jokingly get referred to as the shade hater in Oregon because of all the trees we're cutting. But um, I really do, you know, juniper is an absolutely uh, beautiful native tree species. But if you look back at the um, record, and fortunately, you know, we have trees that we, we're working with. You can count rings and wood in a desert environment doesn't uh, decompose very fast. And so we, we actually feel pretty confident in the, the record about where trees historically occur and where they didn't. Um, junipers live, can live hundreds of years. So uh, these are relatively slow-growing species. What we've learned in investigating kind of across a wide variety of sites from Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Nevada, uh, basically showed um, that trees really accelerated in terms of where they occurred at the, you know, when European settlement really accelerated out west. Uh, we saw a massive expansion at the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, trees moved out to a bunch of new places they never occur, and they've been maturing and reproducing ever since. And kind of that rate of uh, expansion slowed way down in the 1950s and 60s. So now, you know, we're, we're certainly, um, trees aren't ever expanding into new areas at, at the rate they were in the early 1900s. So it is a problem that we can probably solve, and we know that it was caused by something in the past. And uh, some of those factors, people have speculated. We don't know exactly what happened, but certainly, um, you know, again, the issue of unregulated grazing, that was at a time when we didn't have the Taylor Grazing Act with any control over livestock. It was kind of a free-for-all, you know, certainly um, allowed reduced fine fuels, in other words, grasses that normally would carry fires through some of these ecosystems were affected. And so we, the lack of fire... And later in the century, suppression efforts that were pretty active to, uh, and then of course we had a, a period of favorable climate. There, the, the record shows that there was just a, a period of favorable um, climate for trees back then that really allowed them to take off. So we had a perfect storm, you know, at that period of time, and we're still dealing with the the aftermath of that. And and these woodlands are changing very very slowly, and so. You know, we're starting to see over the last few decades some of these stands that were in just early stages of, of tree invasion are, are closing in and pushing things like sage grouse out. So I wonder if you can point to a few specific examples of areas where uh, these juniper trees have been removed and it has resulted in a return of the native sagebrush habitat um, and also recoveries of sage grouse in that area yeah we're heavily invested in monitoring for those types of outcomes you know we are dealing with a species here like sage grouse that's very long-lived and slow to respond to some of these uh, habitat improvements so it's probably a little too early to spike the football in the end zone and said we did it but we are seeing some really promising signs um one, we've improved our scientific understanding of what uh, effect trees have on sage grouse. And um, one publication we, we put out a couple years ago 
in peer-reviewed literature actually documented when you get about 4% cover of trees around sage-grouse breeding areas, uh, those breeding areas go away. And so the threshold for what sage-grouse will tolerate is very, very low. Um, now, documenting a positive outcome after treatment is a much higher bar and one we're still working on. We've got a, a place-based long-term study underway here in Oregon uh, in kind of near the area of Lakeview where we're looking at a whole landscape uh, where we've worked with our partners, BLM, the State Fish and Wildlife Agency and others to do treatments on the scale that we would expect benefits. And then, you know, we've got about, you know, uh, 80 sage grouse radio collared so that we can actually monitor how they change their use of the landscape and whether or not we can actually grow, grow more birds. It seems like one thing that everybody can agree on is that good quality sagebrush habitat is extremely important for sage grouse populations. It's probably the most important factor. What I'm wondering is how do we define good quality sagebrush habitat? You know, great question. And, and short of species like mallards and white-tailed deer, we probably know more about sage grouse than we do virtually any other species. And I mean, it's just amazing research we have. We don't know it all. We're still learning every day, but we know a lot. And um, there's a couple of different scales that I think about when I think about what good quality sage grouse habitat looks like. The first scale is what you see from an airplane. When you fly over the west or a sagebrush ecosystem and you look down, when you can see gray as, you know, from horizon to horizon, that's really a high-quality place for sage-grouse. That's a landscape with a lot of sagebrush and grass and you know, intact. When it's broken up into smaller pieces, whether it's dominated by trees or uh, wheat fields or um, energy development, that generally is a bad sign for, for the quality of sage-grouse habitat at that scale. Now, when you drill down to within a landscape and maybe, you know, say within a, a ranch or particular area, you know, then you might start looking down at, at your boots and trying to ask the question, you know, is this good quality habitat at this scale? And, uh, yeah, we have guidelines. We have so many studies on sage grouse that we've been able to summarize, generally speaking, what constitutes good sage grouse habitat. And it's a mixture of, uh, you know, some level of sagebrush cover combined with healthy uh, grass and wildflower populations. Um, and then they also, in the summer, you know, they need these uh, what we call mesic areas or wet meadows and riparian areas where they, uh, you know, especially hens with their chicks who are walking around in a desert environment walk to these um, rich environments where they're able to eat lots of soft plant material. But in general, that's kind of in a nutshell what, you know, good grouse habitat sounds like and what I look for when we're managing with ranchers. 
One of the central issues for the sage grouse, as you know, is this issue of cheatgrass invasion and these areas that uh, uh, have wildfires come through and then the cheatgrass basically takes over and prevents uh, that native sagebrush habitat from returning to the area after the fire. Um, so I wonder if uh, uh, habitat restoration projects, if that's something that NRCS and the Sage Grouse Initiative is involved with as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say we haven't implemented it at the scale of some of our other practices that we're more confident in, like juniper removal, because it is a very difficult challenge in these environments. Many of them get less than 12 inches of precipitation a year. And in that kind of environment, um, trying to restore something that's burned by either seeding, you know, kind of native plant materials or, uh, you know, trying to restore the site is, is very difficult. Um, and one that we're still in the early learning curve of figuring out. We've got a lot of partners who are helping us do that and, and figure out new ways to improve our seeding success. But in general, um, our efforts have been limited, but we have been at the table. We have been doing things with ranchers in some local areas to try to respond. Um, but we're committed with um, BLM and some of our other partners to, to really addressing these challenges over the long haul. So one of the first things that you mentioned when we started this conversation was that the Safe Grouse Initiative uh, really got going uh, after this 2010 decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that the greater sage grouse warranted listing as a part of the Endangered Species Act, but that they would preclude it from actually listing um, as a part of the ESA because other species facing more grave extinction threats uh, took priority. So my question for you is, uh, was it was there a direct causal link between the creation of the sage grouse initiative and this decision by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Yeah, I think that's fair to say that, um, you know, that was a moment in time when, when all of the stakeholders realized that uh, here we have this window of opportunity. We have a window of opportunity to turn things around uh, across the range of the bird before there's a need for more intensive regulatory action. And with that opportunity, um, our partners and the stakeholders involved have stepped up such that sage grouse is probably one of North America's largest conservation success stories in terms of getting people uh, with, you know, not only the resources, but the political will to change things that have been um, happening for a long, long time. And so we've just had our head down working with people on the ground for the last five years on not only, like I said, implementing some of the restorative things on the ground, but also supporting our other partners who, you know, are working on policy changes. You know, the state governors are engaged in all 11 Western states. And through those collective actions, trying to protect these key sage-grouse strongholds over the long term and, and make them places that, you know, our great-great-grandkids will be able to go and see sage-grouse. So it seems to me like there has been this shift in the perspective of a lot of folks within the ranching community in regards to the way they view uh, efforts to conserve the greater sage grouse. 
what I'm wondering is, do you still hear concerns from ranchers and folks within the ranching community um, over how their land use practices might change if the sage grouse were to be listed as a part of the ESA? Sure. Yeah, I, that concern is is still there, but it's also coupled with um, their actions in terms of just go ahead and do what needs to be done, what's within their control. And, uh, you know, the great thing and, and a key ingredient to this kind of turn in, in uh, fate for sage grouse is that a lot of what we need to do for healthy sage grouse populations is also what's needed to support uh, healthy um, and productive ranching communities, uh, rural communities. And so there's so much common ground that I think it, it's not a hard sell to implement sage grouse conservation. Uh, yes, there's still concern among some about you know potential implications. Perhaps that keeps them at the table a little bit longer. But you know, equally important is that the fact that we've been very proactive. We've uh, all worked together to to help do things while we're talking about you know some of the you know regulatory um, protections that we might also provide to these landowners who do good things on their lands. So I wonder. For these landowners who are, as you say, doing good things and taking steps to help conserve uh, the sage-grouse uh, on the lands that they manage, um, is there anything that would actually change for these folks if the sage-grouse were to be listed under the Endangered Species Act? Yeah, well, we've tried to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as closely uh, throughout this process as we can to ensure that um, the recommendations we give to landowners also contain conservation measures, we call them, that uh, ensure a beneficial effect for sage-grouse and, and also provide some predictability, we call it, that no matter what happens with the listing decision, that they won't be asked to, to do more or that they'll be able to continue to implement their um, grazing management and their conservation efforts uh, as we've agreed. And so there are a number of different tools and mechanisms for doing that. And there's lots of bureaucratic acronyms for those things, but suffice it to say, um, there's over 1100 ranchers across the West that, who are conserving, uh, roughly four and a half million acres through the sage grouse initiative, who all have had, uh, those practices essentially, you know, vetted with the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and said, hey, you're doing good things if you implement these practices, regardless of what happens with the listing decision. So you refer to this conservation effort to save the sage-grouse uh, as a success story. Um, however, sage-grouse populations on the whole are still declining. Um, have we done enough so far? Um, and if not, is there still, you know, what still has to be done in order to ensure that, that we bring the greater sage-grouse back? We got to keep the gas pedal to the floor. And you're absolutely right that true success will be judged over the decades when we look back and we have turned things around for sage-grouse populations. We were able to definitively say what we implemented worked. But I guess what I'm focused in on what gives me hope is the level of engagement, uh, the real 
concrete actions already hitting the ground that really have never been done before at the scale we're doing them now. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find another wildlife conservation effort in the country that rivals this in terms of, you know, the number of acres actually being impacted, the true and meaningful policy revisions being uh, proposed to protect these landscapes over the long haul. So I see the Titanic has turned. It's moving. I think it's moving in the right direction. Yeah, we're going to stumble along the way. We may not do everything right, but I do feel optimistic that, you know, we we're in a different place than we were prior to 2010 and one that I think is, uh, you know, gives us hope of conserving these landscapes long term. Well, it's fantastic to see uh, how much uh, we've been able to accomplish uh, just in the last five years in regards to the conservation of the greater sage grouse. Now, my final question for you is for folks who are listening to this program, uh, who want to get more involved in the conversation, uh, maybe they want to get actively involved in sage-grouse conservation efforts, um, where would you point them? Are there any volunteer opportunities that are available through the sage-grouse initiative? Absolutely. We, we like to say we've got a big tent in the sage-grouse initiative, and, and what that means is um, we're always looking for ways to engage more people in in this great conservation challenge. I would encourage anybody who's interested in, in kind of more information or opportunities to check out our website, um, www.sagegrouseinitiative.com. Uh, and there you'll see um, a whole suite of things that we're engaged in, but uh, also a list of our key partners. And perhaps um, you know those organizations have lots of opportunities for people to volunteer, to support, to get active, um, you know, on, in their local communities. And so we've got organizations like uh, everyone from Mule Deer Foundation, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to Pheasants Forever to some of our local conservation districts. And, you know, they're always looking for folks to help uh, mark fences, plant sagebrush after fires, uh, just a whole suite of things that, you know, in, can help add up to the big picture of, of really saving the sagebrush ecosystem. Well, it's fantastic to hear that there are some good volunteer opportunities, uh, some good ways for folks to get actively involved in sage-grouse conservation. Um, and I will definitely link up uh, those opportunities um, on the show notes page uh, for this episode. Um, so be sure to check that out. And I just want to thank you, Jeremy, for coming onto the show and uh, sharing your message with us. Um, and I also want to thank you for all the years that you've put into sage-grouse conservation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. All right. That was our conversation with Jeremy Maestas, a wildlife biologist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. I love how positive Jeremy is about sage-grouse conservation. I feel like most of the conversations we've had here on the program thus far, as well as through the process of producing our new doc about sage-grouse, have been focused on all the factors that are threatening the species. It's about time that we started talking about the folks who are implementing solutions and working to figure out which strategies will be most effective. The Sage-Grouse Initiative is connecting people within the communities where sage-grouse live and empowering them to be active stewards of the land. And a byproduct of this process is the depolarization of a controversial issue. I must say that I have a much more positive attitude towards the issues surrounding sage-grouse conservation than I did before chatting with Jeremy earlier today. 
And as if that's not enough, we heard about some fantastic opportunities for volunteers in this conversation. For our listeners out there who live in Sagegrass country, definitely get on the website for the Sagegrass initiative and find out what's going on in your area. We'll have links for all this good stuff, plus a link to our recently released short documentary, Greater Sagegrass Emblem of the American West, uh, all up on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC11. That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC11. Now, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you haven't yet subscribed, I'm going to strongly recommend that you head on over to the iTunes store or the podcatcher of your preference and click subscribe. If you are not listening to this podcast for the first time and you have been following the show religiously ever since it launched a few months back, then we would definitely like to hear from you. Please please, please give us a review and a rating on iTunes. This makes a big difference in the crazy algorithm that iTunes uses to determine which shows it displays on the screens of different users. Basically, by leaving us a review and a rating, you are allowing more people to discover this show, get inspired by its content, hopefully, and help save wildlife. So do a good deed and leave us a review and a rating. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And now, after that unusually long rant, I will thank everyone for listening and remind everyone that the Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. The show is produced by myself, your host, Matt Belsky.